Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Our NBC Sunday series is made possible thanks to our friends at Citizen. SurvivingBreastCancer.org and Citizen are joining forces to get you full control over your medical records so you can find better treatment options, including clinical trials. With end-to-end military-grade encryption to keep your data secure, Citizen ensures that you decide who you share your data with, and your privacy comes first. Feel free to check them out at citizen.com forward slash SBC clinical trials. I'll link to it directly below in the show notes. I love having our weekly conversations together where we get to share information and educational resources and meet some of the most amazing people in our breast cancer community. Today, we are recording with Abigail Johnston, who hosts our Every Other Sunday NBC series. And today, as a guest, we are joined with Christy, who is the co-founder of NEAR. She has a website uh, called staynear.co, so that's S-T-A-Y-N-E-A-R.co. And when you go onto their website, you're greeted with your guide through the end of life. And they're a personalized one-on-one end-of-life navigation for patients and caregivers. So today, we're going to be talking with Christy, who's going to share with us how we navigate the the tough conversations around end of life, not just for the person who is transitioning, but for the families as well, because that is such an important piece of the puzzle. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's been great to get to know Abigail and Laura over the last few months, and it's just such a treat to be here um, with everyone today. So thank you. For having me. So my name is Christy Knutson. I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, and Jane Butler is my partner with Near. She's not here today, but she is based out of New York. Um, and we started Near about, we're just at, I mean, we began our research for Near before this, but we kind of officially started Near about a year ago. So we're still very, very new. My background is in communications, which is kind of an interesting segue into um, end of life navigation. But the short story is that I was always very passionate about um, terminal illness and healthcare kind of all, all throughout my life. And um, a lot of that came from personal experience. So from the time I was about 12, I mean, I'm sorry, 10 to 22, I was um, supporting someone in a caregiving role in our close family. We had a lot of illness and death throughout those years. And it really shaped, I mean, if you think about that, the 10 to 22 period is really pivotal in development and um, just kind of your perspective, how you see the world. So it really shaped really everything about me, which I see as a huge gift. And it was a huge privilege. Um, to just be with, you know, be with those loved ones during that time. And of course it was incredibly difficult, but um, that really shaped in my interest in this. And so originally I started out going into communication thinking I would stick with healthcare nonprofits, which is what I did. And I started working with a cancer center um, based out of Illinois. We served cancer patients. Many of them were going through traditional therapy. So most were taking radiation um, or chemotherapy. And then we were a small nonprofit that served them through other com- um, complementary therapies. And so we worked with a local, um, the on- local oncology center and so provided support therapies. And so that was really my first job right out of college. It was exactly what I wanted to do. And I, I loved it. And I worked with the MS Society um, after that. 
And then shortly after that, I had my first child and that was about 11 years ago. And I started um, really just an agency that worked on communications and marketing for healthcare, um, healthcare nonprofits to begin with. And then we expanded. And then a few years ago, we started working with Endwell. I'm sure many of you are familiar with them um, out of San Francisco and Dr. Shoshana Ungleider. And so we started working with them a few years ago. They were a client of ours and became quick friends. We got to know, um, really learned about the end of life doula space. And, and I've got to meet a lot of doulas and I saw how desperately needed their services are. I mean, I knew that firsthand. Um, I knew that firsthand and, but I, I had no idea that they existed. And so really both Jane and I were so captured by their work from the very beginning and thought, okay, like how can we really how can we help kind of expand what they're doing in the world and use our skills to help them get more exposure? And um, and so that's what we're doing with NEAR. We started out as a very traditional online um, community where we would pair people with different services. And then we pivoted away from that a few months ago because we found that it was just too overwhelming. There were too many options at the end of life. It was it was just too much information. And so we really have leaned in toward end of life navigation and we're, we're trying to kind of carve this out. And um, it's been a real, a real journey. And we're just um, really honored by the people we get to work with. That, that's amazing. And, and how much of the discussions that we've had on this webinar series come from personal experiences, come from seeing how something goes well or doesn't go well with somebody else and then using that in your own life. And so I just think that's great that you took what you learned um, in those experiences with your family. W would you talk a little bit more about the things that went well or didn't go well in those experiences that then led you to this company? The three relationships, and very quick summary, the three relationships with my grandmother, um, she had Alzheimer's for many, many years. And so that was that was a little bit of a different end of life experience. But we, I still learned a lot just about the toll it takes on a family and how things aren't talked about. And also how things aren't talked about in terms of grief, both during the experience and then after the loss of someone. And then after that, um, it was my aunt who passed away of breast cancer. And her daughter, my first cousin, we are both only children. And so we were like, we were like sisters. I mean, we were inseparable. We were a unit. And um, so it was her mom who was passing away. And so for those years, we were kind of together navigating that. And then about a year after she died, um, my cousin, Teresa, was diagnosed with breast cancer as well. Um, and so she passed away when I was 22, after about four years, um, four years of illness. And that experience is really what shapes kind of the way I see end of life navigation, because that was the one that I was most cl closely connected to. And I was also a little bit older. So I had a better understanding of what was what was happening. Um, but in summary, what we really found was nobody knew how to talk about end of life. And she was very young. And so, of course, no one from like a healthcare perspective necessarily wanted to go there. Everyone wanted to hold out hope and which we were grateful for on one hand. But on the other, at a certain point, we realized we were not getting honest answers and we weren't getting straight answers. And she, Teresa, was um, without a shadow of a doubt, the most intentional person I've ever known. That's how she lived her life. And to be completely honest, she was, I feel like she was kind of robbed of some of that intention, intentional, um, the opportunity to be really intentional at the end because um, the support wasn't there, the communication wasn't there, we didn't know the questions to ask, et cetera, et cetera. And unfortunately, her experience is not unique. I mean, so many people 
course, it was unique to her, but so many people go through um, really a, a lot of devastating loss and disconnection there at the end. Um, that doesn't have it doesn't have to be that way. And in the moment, I didn't realize, you know, I just thought that this is how it was. And I mean, we were you're in survival mode. And so we just didn't question anything. But in the years since her death, um, you know, I've learned a lot more about the potential for what those last days can look like, what the last years can look like, and the kind of connection and the kind of experience that can come forth. It can be, it's an incredibly difficult time, but it can also truly be beautiful. And, um, and it was, of course, in different ways, but, um, but we, we know that we can do better. And I want, you know, that's really what drives me is, is making sure that other people don't have to have that experience. First of all, thank you for not referring to her four years living with uh, metastatic breast cancer as a battle. Kudos for choosing the right words there. That's something that we we run into a lot, Ge- generally, not on not on this series. But um, tell me a little bit more. You talked about survival mode and how the person who is nearing end of life and then the family is in survival mode. And, and how does that affect their ability to think, their ability to um, process information, et cetera? It's a great question because it has a huge impact. I mean, you have kind of all the different layers, right? So if you're looking, we we are um, really passionate about looking at people as whole people, right? So it's not just the body. It's not just the the disease and what you're seeing kind of from the physical experience. So, but I'll start there. Um, so, you know, you have the physical experience of you're trying all these extra different treatments and um, everything is changing from day to day. You're do, dealing with pain management, um, potential research trials, surgeries, all that. And so from survival mode, from that perspective, it really is just trying to manage everything, um, the medications and the schedules and the questions. And so with that, you barely really have time to kind of come up for air and really breathe and pay attention to what's going on beneath the surface, both from like a mental, emotional standpoint and also a spiritual perspective. Um, And so that's one of the things that we, you know, with end of life navigation, the earlier you can start that, the better, because sure, when you're really, um, when you're really experiencing the physical, um, the physical piece of it, it can be difficult to kind of get out of that. But if you've had time beforehand to start thinking about the emotional, um, the emotional, the mental, the spiritual, what that means to you, what you want that to look like, what's important, um, what assumptions you think other people may make that you want to make sure that they're corrected on um, before you get to a point where you really can't advocate for yourself like you could at the very beginning. Um, so, so yeah, I, I hope I'm answering your question, but, but just the survival piece in that you, you're really, really just kind of going hour to hour and you know, somewhere in the back of your mind, we should be thinking about these other things. And we know that these other pieces of us need attention, but it, it's, um, at the time it doesn't feel like the most urgent. And so it, it gets ignored and, and we could talk more about this too, but then that leads to, you know, all kinds of complications with the grieving process for those who are left behind. Um, and, you know, a lot of that, a lot of that can be avoided. That makes so much sense. I, I love on your website where you talk about the navigators are able to help replacing being overwhelmed with clarity and confusion with comfort. Uh, way to go on those, all those C's. That's great. But um, I, I love that it's it's not saying that's bad. It's okay, here's what is. And then we're going to transform that into something more manageable or something that helps you look forward. Um, so can we talk about if somebody comes to near, um, 
what do you guys do with each person that that comes to you? Because we are new, we're kind of, we're in flux a little bit. And so I'll answer that more. um, I'll answer that what we're doing now, but then I'll also give a little bit of a glimpse at what's coming because I think that's an important piece. So right now, the only thing um, we, we kind of offer these different packages. We work with people. We try to avoid any just kind of one-off conversations because this is such a, personal and complex time. And so we really value building the relationship. And so who, um, when someone comes to near, they are partnered with an end of life navigator and all of our navigators are trained end of life doulas. Some people also refer to them as death doulas. And then they, they begin by just getting to know the person. And so that's really the sweet spot. I think our navigators and and doulas in general, if anyone's ever had a chance to meet an end of life doula, they really are incredible, incredible individuals, incredibly compassionate and wise and attentive. Um, And they're great listeners. And that's what really, that's what we find that people need at the very beginning, because the first kind of burst oftentimes is they're just kind of, um, uh, unleashing all of the things that they know they need to do. Well, I've been told I need this and I read in an article this and I never did this. But once we get past that, that's important. That kind of initial um, unloading of all the expectations and the thing, the practical side of things. But then the real um, sweet part happens right after that when you can then see them as a person outside of the to-do list and the overwhelm. And ask them, like, the number one question is, what matters most to you? What matters? And we make all kinds of assumptions about what matter to people on any given day, and especially at the the end of their life. And sometimes those are true, and sometimes they line up, and, and oftentimes they don't. And so if we can start from a place of understanding what matters to someone... Then yes, we're going to help them address the um, logistical things, the practical needs, making sure everything you know they have their advanced care directive and they have their healthcare power of attorney. All of that is important, and so our navigators work them walk individuals through like a vision conversation where we can ask questions about um, you know. So when people think about this, oftentimes they just say, "Well, what do I want the room to be like?" at the very end of my final days. And that's important. And that's that's a real opportunity to have um, a special experience for you and for the for your loved ones. But it goes beyond that too. And asking really like what, depending on how early someone is, right? You never know exactly how long someone has. Um, even if people tell you a certain number, you don't really know. But to say, okay, looking ahead at how much time we think we have, what is going to make that the most impactful? And what am I? It's it's really addressing um, everything from what I want the experience to be like, but also relationally, like who do I want to connect with? And it can be really difficult to have those conversations with family members because oftentimes, you know, there's layers of relational um, history there. And so it can be really difficult to have those conversations with somebody that you're close to. Oftentimes we find that when someone's, um, you know, when when someone has received a terminal diagnosis, then oftentimes the people who love them most are having a really hard time themselves. And so they're not always available emotionally or physically to have those conversations. And it can lead to feelings of isolation and um, really a lot of feelings of fear that they they don't, that the individual doesn't feel like they can communicate. And so our navigators come alongside them 
And we really say, I mean, it's kind of cliche, it's become cliche in some circles to say we meet you where you are, but that's truly what it is because the experience can look different for every person. Yes, we may have like a certain set of things that we're trying to guide you through and make sure you're paying attention to based on the experiences of the navigators. But beyond that, we're really tailoring the experience to what it is that you personally need um, and what's most important to you. And so it sounds like that information, you get it that through more of an organic process versus like just like filling out a, a checklist. Is that is that correct? Am I getting that correctly? It is. And so so that actually is, is a great segue for me to kind of talk about what it looks like now and what it'll look like in a few months. So right now we have um, kind of two different two different ways to engage with our navigators. One we refer to as like a foundations plan. One is a legacy plan. And the differences in those are that the foundations is the basics. Um, it's over about a two month period um, so that you'll meet with your navigator Again, there there are some things that are kind of the checklist component, but then outside, once you get that done, outside of that is where you can really get into the personal experience. And then the legacy plan is um, just taking that further. That takes it out for six months, and you can extend after that too. If you just if you're really connecting with your navigator and they're becoming a, a major support source for you, then that relationship can continue. But in addition to the continued relationship and time together, we also help them um, through like vigil planning. And really understanding what the vigil process is like, um, we can help with you know planning ahead for memorials and um, legacy projects as well. So those are the two different ways to to get involved. But we know because right now, um, you know, this is not covered by insurance, unfortunately, and so it's only open to private pay. And so we wanted to provide something that was a little bit more accessible because the price point does rule out um, people, unfortunately, and we that you know, bothers us more than we can ever say. Um, and so we have that is, is one option. But then the other that we're working on right now is we've been building out a web application platform where, yes, there are kind of checklists that are available for people to go in. And so if they create an account, they can sign in. But beyond that, they have a chance to chat with a navigator. So we have navigators that are available to chat and that's just at a lower price point. You're not always necessarily getting the exact same navigator. So if you want that continuity, then it has to look a little bit different. But it's a lower, more accessible price point for individuals who still want to be able to connect with someone. Because right now you can go online and find checklists and find platforms. And those are incredible tools. And there are some organizations who are doing really great work around that. Um, and we are we so admire their work in that. And that works for a lot of people. Some people, you know, don't want that that really intense connection um, that really comes from from working with a navigator. But then other people do want more support. So it's just an added layer beyond that. Christy, are these programs open to anyone or is it restricted to only those with a terminal illness? It's really open to anyone. And so, um, you know, if you ask, I, I would I would think most any end of life doula that you talk with, they would say the sooner you can talk about this, the better. And that's why we're so encouraged to see everyone working in the field right now to get people to address these questions and think about things and document things before they receive a diagnosis. Um, we, you know, the majority of our of our communications are geared toward people who do have a terminal diagnosis just because that's our personal experience. <clears throat> Excuse me, my partner Jane. Um, her her story is is really um, just meaningful, and I don't I don't want to talk too much about it. But in summary, 
her, when she was engaged, her fiance was diagnosed with brain cancer. And so she has that experience too of the, um, the trauma and the fear that comes with such a sudden, really terrifying diagnosis. And so that's just where our heart is. Like we really like to pour in to people in that community. Um, but it also is still available for anyone who wants to think ahead about that. I noticed on uh, the website, there there is a person sitting there with all of these bubbles. Um, and, and one is hospice and one is physicians and one is finances and care managers and funeral homes. And so is the idea that these navigators would help to make sense of all of these disparate bubbles that a person is having to engage with? Absolutely. Because oftentimes you know, you're getting contact, you have contact names and numbers written on every sheet of paper stuffed in every bag and folder. And, you know, you don't really, I mean, when you're in, when you're in the field, or if you've lost someone, then you understand more about who you go to for certain questions and who you don't, um, who is going to be more helpful and less helpful. But that is typically not something somebody learns until they're in it. And that's so unfortunate. That is not the time, you know, when we should have to be figuring that out. There's enough on our plates. And um, and and again, by freeing up the capacity for the logistical side of things, it opens up so much potential for the emotional and the spiritual and the relational um, really, you know, a deepening of that. And so, so we, so the navigators do help them make sense of that. And then the tool, the platform that will be released later, excuse me, later this summer is an organizational platform to help you kind of manage all that. Um, and to be able to see everything at a glance, because the way our system is right now, the way our healthcare system is, everything operates in silos. And so nobody is talking to anybody else and other people are working on some solutions to address that in different areas. But, you know, end of life, um, the end of life space in general has really been lagging behind because it's a difficult topic, right? And people are are more hesitant to dig into that. And so that's part of what we see as our navigators roles is helping to take those silos. And at least even if we can't do it, you know, at a macro level right now, at least for the individual help bring all of that together. Is such a true statement that so many different things are in silos. Even individual doctors at a cancer center often exist in in a silo by themselves, and so that's so important uh, to to. It's important to remember. I think even for me as a patient, like I'll go into a different doctor's office and you know assume that everybody's read all of the notes, even you know they're all in the same building, and then discover that that isn't the case. But then you know, is it really a reasonable expectation that every doctor is going to look at you in the same way? And and I've learned that it's not. It's not reasonable. My medical oncologist is not as concerned about my emotional well-being as my psychiatrist is. And, and that's just because they wear different hats. But I think that's such a great reminder that whatever situation you're in. And I, I always like in, you know, end of life stuff to birth stuff, right? We're talking about the beginning and the end of life. But but how much do you plan and how much do you think through all of these different things when you're giving birth? And of course, then you've got birth doulas. And so then here we are at the end of life. Um, it, in some ways, it's very similar. In some, you know, we're, we're all going to experience it, right? We've all experienced birth. We're all going to experience death. 
And then here's this person who has some expertise to come alongside and help guide that process. Do you find that a lot of your navigators were social workers before nurses, before they come to this um, doula, um, I don't know, job experience, whatever you want to call it? There are a good number who have nursing backgrounds um, and social work backgrounds who have met also some who have who have background in chaplaincy um, or some, you know, some other spiritual work and they realize like, okay, this is really where I want to dig in. And then, of course, such a large number of doulas come to the work through a personal experience. Either they had they lost a loved one and they didn't have the support that they needed or they were one of the lucky ones who did have the support that they needed and they want to pass that on. And I think one thing that you said was really interesting about how if you're meeting with an oncologist, they're not going to necessarily be as interested in your mental health as say your therapist would. And, and that's true. And that, that results in that, you know, is there is real, a real result of some of the silo effect and all that. But what we found when we did, we entered into our second phase of research back in the fall And it was one of the most rewarding things I've ever done because we spent a lot of time with healthcare professionals of variety. So everyone from like admin to um, oncologists and palliative care physicians and hospital social workers, we looked really deeply at what that hospital to hospice um, transition looks like, which it looks bumpy um, at best. And what we found though is I didn't know what to expect in terms of, are we going to be met with resistance? Because a lot of what we're doing just by nature of what we're doing is, um, you know, revealing or um, talking openly about the gaps in the journey from someone from say diagnosis to death and even even after death and grief for their loved ones. And so what we found though, is that the people that we interviewed were so quick to say, this is broken. We know that this is not working. Everyone, all, everyone that I just listed, the palliative care physicians, the oncologists, the social workers, everyone is like, this is broken. And it's over it's so overwhelming and such a large problem that everyone just kind of, they just do the best they can. And it, they, they kind of do the best they can on like a one-off, um, you know, one-off kind of approach because that's really all that they have time for. They're overworked, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so to me, that was just so encouraging though, to see that they saw it too, and they wanted it to be different. And the second that anyone heard that someone is working on, you know, not just someone, not just us, there's a whole community, this incredible end of life community that these people are working on helping bridge those gaps. You could feel the relief. You could just feel the relief in the conversation and the um, the interest in being part of that and the interest in, in doing whatever they could to provide the information or the background that would help um, help make that possible. So I do think that there is a really bright future um, for, for the end of life experience, because obviously we're all going to face it at some point. And I do think that there's so much hope in that everyone is open in a way, especially now after COVID. Um, generally speaking, people are talking about death more. They're more willing to um, to have the conversations, both from a healthcare perspective, um, if we're talking about healthcare professionals, and then also personally. And so it's a really interesting time. And I just walked away from that 
realizing two things. One is the problem is so much bigger than I thought it was. I thought I knew it was big and, and I had no idea, but yet everyone really that we met with at least um, was, was very interested in seeing it be solved and, um, and very supportive and encouraging of what we were trying to do. That's wonderful that, that there was no sense of competition. Like, like this is our space, like you're encroaching on our space. It was, that, that's, that's amazing that it was so open. Um, we've got a couple of questions from Facebook, which I will definitely get to, but I wanted to ask, how do you find the people who join your organization as navigators? Well, because we started out, we had such a, an interesting beginning because we were more of a connector. Um, the technical term is marketplace. I really don't like that term um, in terms of, you know, in regard to what we're talking about. But from a practical standpoint, that was like the backbone of what we were doing was we were trying to provide. Here is a community of people who provide end of life services. Help Let us help you edu- get educated on what these services are. And then here are people who need the services and we'll try to match them. And again, we really just never could um, make that work well. And what we found was that there was so much overwhelm. Um, And, you know, our heart was for them to see the possibilities, but instead, oftentimes users were just, you know, overwhelmed. You talked about addressing these things before the end of life then has uh, ramifications for the caregivers and for the family after their their loved one has passed. Can you talk about a little bit about how doing this work leading into the transition um, then has positive ramifications after the person has died as well? Yeah, I mean, that's a really important piece that we've been looking at since the beginning. And we're we're learning every day. Um, we're learning more about what that looks like. And right now, kind of how that plays out is if someone comes to us for navigation and they're going to be paired, the very first thing they do is complete a matching questionnaire. And so that really gets at the heart of, you know, not only is what, what's most important to you, but tell me about your background. Tell me about your cultural background. Um, your spiritual background. Do you have any, when you think about who you want to walk alongside of you during this, do you have any characteristics or experiences that you want to avoid um, or any that you really want to make sure you share with that navigator? And so because we're new and we're just getting started, we are not going to always be able to match that perfectly. But to have that understanding of what's important to that person at the very get go helps us um, to match them with the best person. And if we don't have someone to find the appropriate resources, so that was kind of our first our first um, thing that was really important to us was just figuring out how to make sure that that match at the very beginning is um, is a good fit. And then beyond that, our navigators are so incredibly, you know, um, just compassionate and well-versed. And again, like I said, they're incredible listeners. And so they're able to pick up on things too, just based on their experience, because most of them have experience working with individuals, both like on a volunteer basis and then sometimes on a private basis. So that may mean that a family hires them to come into the home, which that may be a different, um, you know, that may be a different experience than if they are at a hospice or at a hospital and they were called in bedside on a volunteer basis. So they're able to really bring all those experiences to the table. And then of course, we're just looking always for ways that we can improve that and ways that we can really make sure we're 
um, sensitive, not only sensitive, but just educating every single person that they can come in contact with on our side, um, you know, how to navigate that well. And it's a continual learning process for sure. What I found in my own grief after losing Teresa was that um, the grief was incredibly complex. And over the course of years, um, over the course of years, it will in a few months, it will be 15 years. And I'm still kind of uncovering what all that actually means. And I think not not to say at all that the grief wouldn't still have been, you know, just as deep, but some of the complexity would not have been there, I don't believe, if we would have had, you know, an end-of-life doula or someone who was skilled in those conversations to walk us through that. And what I mean by that is oftentimes, um, let's take the, I mean, there's so many different angles, but let's take the relational angle. So if a doula or a navigator is meeting with an individual, then they're able to really get a sense of where are you feeling peaceful in different, you know, relationships or experiences, where are you feeling like things are undone. Um, And if the individual who is dying is able to, you know, is able to face their death and is able to really look at it as, as much as they want to, right. Um, For what that means for them and what that means for them, their family, that opens up this incredible, like whole other door of conversations that they can have with their loved ones. And that the ability, the capacity, um, for how that can influence the person's grieving process after their loved one is gone is is really incredible and profound. And, you know, we see a lot, we're learning a lot right now about like, um, you know, how, how even like grief and trauma can change your DNA and it really does carry on for generations. And so I'm able to look in our family and it, you know, it's just really interesting to kind of see the ways that, you know, that these traumatic experiences that were not able to be talked about and dealt with at the time have carried on from generation to generation. And so it's, it's a, um, an acute issue for the person who has lost someone, but it's also a generational issue. Um, and then of course that of affects the whole family and community, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then for the person who's dying, you know, as well, they they just have um, so much more opportunity to build those connections and to not just build the connections, but to say what they want to say. And, and when people hear that, oftentimes they think of these big moments, right? Like somebody has this huge regret or whatever. And yeah, sure, there's some of that. But but it's beyond that. It's really making sure, you know, you get to say everything that you want to say and making sure that down the road, um, you kind of feel like you had a chance for everything to be out in the open. There's a lot of beauty in that. And in the moment, it can be really hard, but our navigators do a great job of helping people kind of go as deep into that as they would like to. Something along the lines of there wasn't anything more to be said between people and they were able to let go of their loved one without that regret. Yeah. Um, In one of our support groups, we've been, um, or will be talking about the difference between grief and regret and just how you, you grieve the things that, that you've lost. But if you don't have regrets, um, if, if you're entering into the transition to death, having done all the things that you needed to do, having said all the things that you've needed to say, Yes, there's a grieving process for you as the person who's dying as well as your family, but there isn't regret. And how much more freeing is that? How much more, how much better, I think, to your point of a, a death experience the whole family has. And then you don't have those traumas that are then 
handed down in in the DNA. Um, I find that such a, a fascinating idea as well. Do you have any resources or particular articles or books that talk about how trauma and grief change DNA? I mean, obviously, I immediately think of the Holocaust and and how the Jewish community has been so marked by that. But is there anything that you find especially helpful? Well, there are two things that come to mind. The first one is, um, and I wish I could remember the exact the exact name of who she was interviewing, but it was a podcast with Krista Tippett on being, and it was an episode. And I want to say the title had something to do with like epigenetics. Um, I think that word was in the title maybe, and I can find the link for you afterwards if that would be helpful as well. So that was a really great podcast. And then um, of course, the book, The Body Keeps the Score is also an incredible resource for that. Fear is at the root of so much of what's going on. And so to give someone an opportunity, even like a side, I mean, the the conversations themselves are for sure important, but then at the same time to give this person who you love an opportunity to ask questions directly to the navigator themselves, that um, can also be really powerful as well for everyone's like level of understanding and also comfort. And then once you can process and metabolize that fear, that's where you can get to a lot of the really, you know, when people speak about the profound experience at end of life, that's really when you're kind of opening up the door and opening up the um, capacity for that. We haven't really talked a lot about the grief piece. And I think that could be especially important um, just to kind of round out the conversation. Because so often when we hear grief, we think about what happens after someone dies. But as we've all learned over the last year with all of the kind of many and huge losses with COVID both, that we, we live in the space of grief in and out our whole lives. And it doesn't, it's not always tied to someone passing away um, or someone dying. And so I think that's really important, especially for someone who has, has a terminal diagnosis that they what we what we're trying to really educate people on is um and our community on really is just let's look at grief through the lens of what you're experiencing right now you know um are you that can look like anything from lo- feeling like you're losing your identity if you had to stop working or watching your relationships shift there can be a lot of grief that comes from that um seeing those dynamics change and just grieving an old way of life um, or grieving an, a naivety that a naivety that can, comes from not having a diagnosis and really not having to face things like that. Um, and so so all of those things are really important to consider. And we do we our navigators work with people on both the planning side and also the grieving side. But what I wanted to point out is that the the grieving um, offerings that our navigators do, you know, can share with our community. Those are not just for after loss. Those are also for people who may have just been diagnosed or have a family member who's diagnosed and they want to address some of that grief in real time um, before before death. Kelly Davis, somebody who is uh, ver- writes a lot um, and is very involved in the NBC community, recently posted on Facebook this idea of all these little deaths and how um, the loss of you know identity, of working, of the potential for retirement, of children, of the possibility of grandchildren, that having a terminal diagnosis or even a very serious illness there are these things that begin to add up. Um, for myself, I just I just lost a tooth because uh, I have osteonecrosis of the jaw because of some medication that I've been on. And you wouldn't think that's really that big of a deal that you've lost a tooth, but there's 
that's a that's another little death. That's another thing that that I have lost. And um, when she wrote that, it just was so significant to me because I think sometimes we overlook those things. Um, in the breast cancer community, we lose a lot of things that are overtly our femininity, right? We lose organs that have to do with femininity, that have to do with sexuality. And I'm, you know, I the whole gender versus um, uh, sex. I, I always get those those mixed up, but I know there's a difference. Um, but but it is a big deal that that we lose these things. And so thank you for for mentioning that this whole idea of anticipatory that you're looking towards your death. But yet there's all these losses on the way to that point for you and your family. Um, so thank you for, for raising that. I think that's so significant. Anyone who feels like they may be experiencing some of that, whether it's anticipatory loss or kind of the smaller losses, to the first, even, even if you don't want to go down the whole grief coaching or grief therapy trail. Um, you know, even if you don't want to pursue that, there's so much that you can do. And the very first thing is just to acknowledge it, just acknowledge it to yourself. So we're not saying you need to pursue, you know, sessions with a grief coach necessarily, although it, it could be really helpful, even if that's not an option for you or something you're comfortable with. There's so much that can be done just on a personal level. And it really begins with that acknowledgement and, and giving yourself essentially like the grace just to say, hey, this is a real thing. This is not in my head. This is a real thing. And that will start naturally kind of the process of being able to, to work through that. Christy, thank you so much for this in-depth guide on how to navigate end of life and providing us with a variety of resources and tools that we could add to our never-ending toolkit. Thank you, Abigail, as always, for moderating these conversations. And we will see everyone for our NBC series every other Sunday. And you can get all the information from our website at survivingbreastcancer.org forward slash events. Thank you again, Abigail and Christy. Have a great day. Where you guys take care and we'll, I'll talk to you soon, I'm sure. Thank you all for joining and tuning in each week to Breast Cancer Conversations. As a reminder, this content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always ask the advice of your physician or other qualified health professionals with any questions you have regarding a medical condition. Be sure to check us out at survivingbreastcancer.org where you can find out more about upcoming happenings and events and webinars, as well as follow us on social media. Instagram handle is survivingbreastcancer.org, all one word, and also on Twitter, which is SBC underscore ORG. Let's continue the conversation online. Keep on thriving, and we'll talk to you again next week.